Welcome to the Thought Echoes podcast, where we have an opportunity to listen in as people reflect on their relationship with their thoughts and their creative work and how it's changed since their brain injury. My name is Beth Bonnes, host of the Thought Echoes podcast. Thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed this month's interview. Hi, Dr. Kate. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. You've got such an incredible story. I'm really excited about where the interview may lead. Can you start us off by describing the stroke that you had first? Basically for me. Yes. I was 39, uh, three young kids, four, eight, and 10. I was a 70-mile-a-week fell runner. I had a massive marketing career. I was, I was in the prime of my life at 39. 12 hours after a run round Chatsworth house with a headache, I'm on life support. Doctors asked my family to switch off me off because, quite frankly, if I had a, I had a brainstem stroke and if I was going to recover, I'd be pretty much, they would not use the words, but I will because it was about me, yeah. a cabbage. So I'd have no quality of life. So while I'm on a ventilator, now's their chance. They didn't. Fortunately, my ex-husband didn't. But um, I then went on to make this incredible recovery. But to wake up out of the coma and to think, feel, see, hear everything, but not move a single muscle below your eyes. To have doctors thinking you're vegetative, can't say the word, when you're fully cognitive as I am now, but I just couldn't communicate. I couldn't flicker an eyelid or a muscle or a finger or a leg to acknowledge uh, a question. So in terms of that existence, and I can tell you what happened in terms of your interest area, and it's fascinating for me, till that point, I was a capable wife, I was a social organiser, I was the hands-on fun-time mum, I had the big Johnny Big Balls marketing career, with my own business, I, it wasn't that big, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> All right, it wasn't thank um, you, Marvel, but. Uh, you know, so yes, in my mind it was. But anyway, <laughs> um, and I had all these masks. I presented this, I was a people pleaser. I was motivated because I'm a middle child with a huge chip on my shoulder, which stood me in good stead, if I'm yeah. honest, later on. Um, when I think about this, when you have all those masks that we don't realize we have at the time because we're too busy getting the kids through school and too busy building the career, too busy getting the Tesco shopping or whatever it is, and always thinking about the future. Oh, this weekend I've got people staying. I have to do the washing, the ironing, the cooking, the cleaning, the meal preparation. I'm always in a future state. I'm always thinking, oh, Monday, I need to get the kids' pat lunches sorted out with extra money for the school trip we're going on. My point is, I was never in the present. I was never looking back in the history. You know, yesterday is the history and tomorrow is a mystery. I now know what I need to be in, which is the present. But back then, my life was about people pleasing. I wanted to be motivated. I was motivated because as a, as a middle child, I was a stopgap. I wasn't the eldest and I wasn't the cutest. I was a stopgap. And I used to be pushed, my mum used to push me down the bottom of the garden in a silver cross tra um, pram and say to all her friends when I'm as an adult, 
you were the best baby. We used to push you down the bottom of the garden and you wouldn't make a noise for six hours. And it's like, that was the story of my life. I just wanted to be visible. So I overachieved mm-hmm. in everything I did from parenting. I wanted to be the perfect parent. I wasn't going to make a failure of it like you did. I'm, then my parents are divorced. Um, uh, I was going to be the best friend, the social organiser. I was going to be off with the kids but run a career at the same time with a husband who did nothing. I wanted to be perfection. And I'm not being a, I, I'm not being catsy about that. He didn't. Um, I, I, well, I did everything. I had all the balls. And I didn't want, I thought with the overachieving, every time I did something, I was like to my parents, da-da. And, it, and they'd always say, yeah, that was good, but you should have done that better. I never got that, that P word that I always wanted, the proud proud of you and then I could stop you know so before that was my life I had lots of masks I had so many identities I wanted the world to think of me as capable social organizer whatever else um but I they also had identities they put on me so when I I was in the state I was for weeks and months I mean when I didn't just wake up and start moving um I had plenty of time to think, and in that moment, not being able to socially organise, not being able to be the hands-on mum doing the school drop-offs, not being able to be the cook, the cleaner, the whatever else, all of a sudden, I was a piece of meat. I had no purpose, no value, no self-worth, no identity. I didn't know who I was anymore. And so for a few weeks, that kind of um, entertained my brain until the point I got written off. And then my whole self, those those ambitious tendencies, those determination, that relentlessness really stood me in good stead because I had the most extraordinary recovery for my level of industry, injury, doctors worldwide have ever seen. And to think what I've done with my career since, I've not just climbed under a rock and you know, I've had to sustain myself, I'm divorced, um, and commercialise stuff. But most people with what I've been through, you know, they'd be retired off for life, you know. I, I couldn't do that. So, but I had to, when I got, the moment I got written off, that was the moment where I'd gone from, just put me out of my misery, turn my machine off, put a pillow over my face. Because I couldn't be the mum I wanted, which I always wanted to be. I couldn't be this. I couldn't be the friend. couldn't be anything. I didn't want out. But the minute in the meeting, the whole of multidisciplinary team were assembled and basically said, send her to a nursing home because she ain't going to recover. And I was in the meeting. That moment, with someone who's always had a chip on her shoulder, like, don't you you dare write me off. Don't you dare. Mm -hmm. I will show you. I have no idea when it will happen. And from that moment, forget the depression, forget the feeling sorry for myself, Forget the wanting to die. It was, I'm going to bloody well show you. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I will walk out of hospital. I will run by my first anniversary. I will hug my kids. I'll bloody well eat again because I hated not eating. Um, and, do you know, that was the catalyst. Mm-hmm. But So I can tell you the mindset I had before actually stood me in good stead for my rehab. Very mm-hmm. big time. And I went on, I walked out of hospital, I ran down the first anniversary, blah, 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 hugged the kids, 
eight. But when I came home, you know, what did I learn about me? I learned that um, I'd lost a lot of friends. I'd lost my self-worth. I lost my purpose apart from rehabilitating. What did I feel? I lost my business, lost my career, lost my husband, lost my ability to parent. I lost um, the relationship I thought I wanted with my mum because she didn't, I wasn't able to give me what I needed. Um, lots of media interests, lots of, you know, you're superhuman, you're this, that, and the other. Books are being written about me. But I felt very unworthy. And the only time I felt good about myself was when I did all the media interviews I used to privately get from Canada to South America to South America to, I don't know, India to Germany, everywhere. It went ballistic, my story, because I'm a lot single, single girl who recovered. Um, but the thing that was interesting, I didn't get paid for that, but what was interesting is of all the interviews, Sky, World News, everywhere, RTL, Globo News, South America, um, I got all these emails. My mother, my sister, my brother, my father have been written off too. Please help us. And I said very clearly, no promises. They're just possibilities. Right. But you're certainly not going to help yourself doing nothing. And you never know what might happen. And so that was it. From that, within three months of leaving hospital, I founded my own global registered charity. Within three months of leaving, I was in hospital 10 months. Um, I'd already started writing my book, Running Free, which has gone internationally published. So proud of that. Um, and so I set this charity up, and it was to help all young stroke survivors. Yes, with the USP of dealing with locked-in syndrome, but people, youngsters who've still got mortgages, car loans, kids who get to university, still want to life. They don't want to be retired off just doing volunteering at 40. Mm -hmm. You know? I'm there to try and help them rehabilitate to be their best selves. And in doing so, I healed my own PTSD. Forgiving. Mm. Mm. However, and I've got some incredible stories. I only posted on LinkedIn today about Christine Waddell. You know, I've been locked in for 17 years, not eating in the headdress. And within two years of my intervention, she stood up, she's eating the biggest piece of chocolate cake. I mean, wow. my biggest, loads of stories like that. All of a sudden, I'm worthy. All of a sudden, I've got a unique knowledge the world hasn't got, and I'm making inroads, and people are getting better outcomes because of my way of thinking. However, whilst that heals me, what I realised in lockdown, uh, let's go on, transport yourself for years. I'm doing this, I'm busy as I ever was, helping people. For nothing, I was volunteering. It was all volunteering, my charity. Because I wasn't in it for the money. Um, and then um, and then my trustees walked. So then I started a speaking career where I was taught to leaders and about communication, resiliency, and leading well-being and all that sort. And I still do that now, and that pays my bills. But um what I there was a tipping point in lockdown. I realized when I couldn't do that anymore, apart from the Zoom meetings with families or doctors or the you know medical section uh, sector. I lost my, 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 I became very depressed. Why did I become depressed? Because within three days, I lost all my conference speaking work. No one had conferences anymore. I'm divorced. I'm thinking, crap, what am I going to do now? And then the work that gave me value and worth 
dried up because people was petrified and everyone was in a state of flux. So all of a sudden I'm like thinking I'm worthless. And I realized in that moment that I tipped the balance and I, giving it, we know and volunteering is brilliant to help you heal, but there is a tipping point when you need to volunteer and give to feel good about yourself. And that's what I realized about myself. So I had another big learning, apart from getting finding a way to live and sustain myself financially, because I'd lost my business for the second time, um, I realized that my mental health really struggled and spiraled downwards because I hadn't realized that I had to do this like a drug. Because if I didn't help people, I didn't know who I was anymore. I didn't have a purpose. So I'd not really changed in, in actual fact until lockdown. And then I realized I needed to switch things up. And yes, I did get creative. I did, you know, for me, photography, landscape photography is the big thing. Mm -hmm. I used to take my dogs out, we'd walk, because I live on the Peak District, for hours and hours and hours just doing that, you know, not spending any money, basically. Um, and, you know, a few speaking gigs came in online on Zoom, which was great. But with what I do, it's all like word of mouth. People in the audience, I never had to advertise what I did, because there was right. always someone in the audience right, right. said, we'll have her for our conference. That was it. I started lino printing. I started trying to teach myself to play Wonderwall on the guitar, you know, because I realized in that moment, you know, I, work had defined me and I was very proud that it defined me because I did something nobody else did. And I did it altruistically. And, you know, to be coined the phrase the original stroke fiver by someone in America, actually, you know, it's like bloody hell, you know, I'm good at something. I can say that I've helped the lives of thousands of people and my life's had an impact and mm, I've made yes. a difference and that matters when you're half dead and you're thinking you could have died and actually you could have been killed because you didn't die but you weren't your outcomes yes. weren't good then for me that making a difference is I mean for me the secret of life I'll share this with you is to make a difference in the world two three things to make a difference in the world to collect memories of people who love you and to belly laugh at least once every day. That's, that's for me, the secret of life. And I've done all that. Um, and I'm very proud of myself for doing that. And so I think, you know, and, and, and I've become ambassador since subsequently I've had to change the way I think, like I did in hospital. You know, people want to lower my expectations how dare you? If yeah. it matters to me to walk out of hospital, if it matters to me to hold my kids and eat again, who are you to say that's ambitious? If I don't do it, then I don't do it. But if it's something that matters to me, I will be motivated to give my right arm to make it happen. I mean, I often quote the example, say you're paralysed uh, below the waist, but you really want to walk again. And you've got £80,000 in your back pocket. You could walk again with an exoskeleton. If it mattered that much, you could do it. You know, it wouldn't matter that much to me, to be honest. I wouldn't have the cash either. But you know what I mean? No one should ever lower anybody's expectations. And that's what they did time and time and time again. And I don't raise expectations. I give them no promises, just possibilities. They could be positive or negative, but... 
mature though can guarantee they'll not improve if they stay stagnant and they're happy to be cared for and their butts white for them and their food prepared and cut up for them that's fine if that's how you want to exist but that's not for me you know i want most people want to be independent don't they so i think I think there's a lot of create a lot of lockdown taught me stuff I probably should have learned that I didn't because I went from a marketing career to helping people and that became a drug and that made me okay. I'm a nice person because I do this, but when I take that away, who am I? And I fell into the same trap. I've never admitted this before, by the way, but it's true. Um, so there we are. Um, but you know, I think. Um, I think in all this, I mean, there's so many angles you could take off my story from the childhood trauma and how my kids at four, eight and ten are having to deal with the trauma of my illness and leaving the family home for 10 months. They're 24, 22 and 19 and it's got no better and it's heartbreaking and there isn't sufficient help out there to deal with children of trauma through not their own stroke, but their parents' stroke or their caregiver's stroke or their grandparents' stroke. And there's not enough in any trauma, whether it's cancer or death or anything, I don't believe. That's a different issue. But I think, I mean, maybe you want to ask me some questions, probe a bit more, but I think, you know, if I was to look back and, and one of the advice points would be, I've never want. I've never wanted to do any other career since I've been ill. I was misdiagnosed. They wanted to kill me, and I don't mean that nastily, but you know they wanted to switch me off for the benefit of my family. Yeah, that hurts because you feel dispensable. You feel worthless, and I, that's the overriding feeling I had from my illness. In one word, it made me feel worthless, and getting my worth back has been. It's taken, I mean, we're 13 years on, on February the 7th. Um, but I think um, what what I've learned about me about me is that I've had to embrace my new normal. I still, there's not a day that goes by that I don't wish I spoke like I used to speak. I mean, and I haven't really fully come to terms with that, you know. I haven't really come to terms with the fact that I can have a glass of wine and sound like I've had four bottles of wine because of my dysarthria. And the fact that people think I'm drunk when I'm not, that upsets me. I haven't really come to terms with the fact that when I don't want to limp, creates anxiety in me and then I limp more. So, for example, if I'm dating, I've been doing that. I'm now seeing somebody, thankfully. Um, you know... I've never wanted to go into a date where I was anxious going to a date like people would be. And I wouldn't want to limp because I think it might put people off. But because I'm anxious, I limp more than I would normally. Do you know what I mean? And it's something I can't control. It's this, it's, it's if I'm cold or if I'm anxious, it accentuates. And, and, and that, ups, that upsets me. And I don't think I fully embrace the new me, although I think with what I've done with my experiences, I'm pretty proud of myself, actually. Yeah. I, you know, I don't, I don't have to, I don't fight for my parents' um, approval. Attention. My dad died in lockdown suddenly, but um, two years before, in his mobility scooter, quite out of the blue, he just said, "You know, Katie." He said, "I'm so proud of you." 
and everything you've achieved and what you've been because he had his own health issues I don't think he ever realized how much I must have struggled until he had his own and then and then he looked back and he's like gee I don't know how you did this and then and then to go and do what you do and I'm like I wasn't even expecting that I wasn't trying to get you to say that but Wow. wow, it's like Forrest Gump stopping running. It's like run, 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 run. And all of a sudden, at the end of the film, he stops. I don't need to do this anymore. That's how I feel. I don't need to try and impress them and get them to feel proud of me anymore. I've learned that. Um, uh, I've, uh, I think that was a biggie for me. But what, what that's been replaced with is this having to sustain yourself when... And the second time the business has been taken from Monday, the rug's been pulled from Monday, you know. Um, and I think the advice I would give advice to caregivers, definitely. And it's something I hear on my I have loads of closed groups on Facebook to help people after stroke. I've just set up a new one, improve your stroke, uh, improve your speech cafe. And it's a really vibrant, positive community that swap ideas and helping and support, connect each other. And, that, you know, I post on there regularly because the peer mentoring is so important. I mean, it's so important to help people improve. And, that you know, I've been doing that for years and I always do it voluntarily because it, it helps people flourish, be the best they can. It helps them realise they're not bloody weird and other people feel exactly like they do, even though every stroke's differently. Mm-hmm. Every stroke's different. Uh, you know, and I think that, I think the patience and which from loved ones is a big one because so often loved ones will help you, pull you to the car or they'll say, sit in the car and we'll get you in the car and we'll transfer you rather than walking because they're being impatient actually. And they don't want to let someone get the words out who's got aphasia or because they want to get on because they're busy like I was with all the balls. And they're thinking, come on, I've only got half an hour to sort this out and it's taken me 15 minutes to tell me one sentence but it's so important for people to be given time and a space to do it themselves independently and I know that's a frustration for caregivers but at that piece of advice I definitely yeah. give them yeah 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 I hear that causes, yeah yeah it causes so much frustration and I think as well the best advice I ever got was of a friend who said Kate you we know you work at a thousand miles per hour and I was given the reputation. I therapist in my rehab unit threw everything at me technology wise for rehab because they said if it doesn't work with Kate, it won't work with anyone. They said I pushed them harder than they pushed me. Now that's telling from rehab. But my good friend did say to me one day, she said, Kate, you cannot eat an elephant in one go. It's bite-sized chunks. That's great. And you know I mean, you know, it really is. Um, and I, I think what I've learned, what would I tell my old self? For example, I would say, do not let anyone lower expectations. Stop living in the future. Be more present. Smell the roses. Look up. Smell. Think about today. Don't think about yesterday. As I say, it's history. Tomorrow's a mystery. It's Focusing on today. What were your little gays today? What made you happy today? What made you smile today? What are you grateful for today? Um, what breakthroughs did you have today? You know, what would you do differently tomorrow because of today? You know, give yourself time, not self-indulgent, but time to actually 
life isn't we can all catastrophize let's be honest we can all do that and given the world at the moment and has been for years you know you know i'm in my house on my own i'm divorced i've got you know the business is not the way it was you know i could catastrophize i'm gonna lose my house i'm gonna have to move out right, right, right. you know i think be more present you can do anything that matters to you if you try really damn hard accept your fail along the way and the painful failures are painful but in all the successes the tedx is the books the awards the research the speeches the things i failed in were the biggest lesson learners for me i mean absolutely for example my third book absolute utter fail i was trying to create a book on everything to do with stroke and you know I, uh, the 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 what I was trying to do was very uh, admirable, but oh, the execution of it was awful. But the point was, I spent weeks and weeks and months and months doing this thing, and you know, and that hurt. It really hurts. I don't like failing, like nobody does, but we do, and you'll learn more, and that's the positive of failing. But you've got to accept, you know, things in my rehab journey were horrific fails, you know. I, I have for years thought my dysfunctional family as a result of me failing as a mum. I never asked for my stroke. I never asked to be out of the home for 10 months. I never asked to come back in a wheelchair. And my eight-year-old at the time, who I was very close to, overheard him saying in the garage to his dad, mum's back, but not as she was. And yet I'd moved mountains to be back in that state. Can you understand the hurt? I mean, it's like, and he's particularly troubled by it. You know, he has been for years and and yet one former relationship. So for me, I spent years berating myself, thinking, you know, it's my fault. Parental guilt on another level. But, you know, then I had to say to myself, this happened to you because you could take it. I'm not religious. I was raised Catholic. I don't like religion, I have to say, but the spirit inside here. If you really want to do something, you're going to figure a way. You've got the, that's the thing. I mean, a doctor came one day, one year to the conference. I did a stroke conference with my charity. He one year bought my book. The second year he came back and told me, he said, that was an incredible book. He said, I didn't know what to expect as the medic. But you know, it was incredible. But your spirit, and I said, I wasn't thinking straight. I said, I'm not religious. He goes, No, your yeah, spirit, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, It just is so strong. And you know, uh, that's really incredible. You can do amazing things. And I actually would go further and say, You know, it's very healing. The spirit, I mean, it has a power, healing power of all of its own. The spirit, you know. Uh, and certainly with me. So in terms of creativity, mm. um, you know, I still love my photography. I, I still love, I like to draw. I've not got into poem, poetry, to be honest. And I love actually nonfiction. For me, I could eat up life stories. I love it. Um, I'm reading at the moment. It's more of a, uh, an educative, educative book on parenting, although it's for people with younger kids. Dr. Shafali, I'm really into her at the moment. You know, she's 
she talks a lot about maths and our identities and you know the, the expectations we put on our children our family and our friends mm-hmm. you know and, and happiness really comes from within us and I've learned that in lockdown that my happiness isn't dependent on you emailing me with a Zoom link. It isn't dependent on my kids texting me or ringing me and saying, come on, let's go for a coffee or a friend. My happiness comes from me. Right. And, I, and to sit down and think about what makes you happy. And I, I did a lot, though. It's like, well, I like freshly laundered sheets. <laughs> I like to hear Frank the parakeet on the road outside my house twerping away. I like to... Um, I really like to learn new things. You know, for me, I had to really delve deep into what actually makes me happy that right. doesn't require anybody else doing anything for me. What an inspirational story. The amount of experience you've gone through since the stroke and what you've done in terms of helping people is incredible. I look forward to staying in touch with you and uh, talking again in the future. Take care. Thanks for joining me this month. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, leave a comment, and subscribe. Until next month, take a moment and hug someone you love.